Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Welcome back to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, advisor, speaker and author of Net Positive. And joining me on the show today is Joe Courtright. Joe is the president and principal economist of Impressa, a Portland-based city-focused consulting firm. He's also the director of City Observatory, a think tank that focuses on urban economics. Additionally, he's been published by the Brookings Institution where he serves as a non-resident senior fellow and is the author of the widely utilized City Vitals Report. He's with us today to tackle the ever-growing problem of city congestion and how shared mobility may be able to ease its pains. We'll also talk about new modeling systems for incorporating new mobility alternatives. So glad to have you with us. Great to be here. So let's pick one of your, your many roles and talk about your work with the City Observatory. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing there? Sure. City Observatory is an urban policy think tank, which has been around for about seven years. We do our own original research on cities and then try and distill the best of the research that we see on cities and urban livability for um, folks really around the country. Uh, and our focus is on the top 50 or so metropolitan areas in the U.S., all the metro areas with a million or more population. Now there's 50 now that are a million or more? Uh, 53, actually, that are a million more. Wow. That's kind of shocking. Yeah. So we're going to talk a lot about congestion, obviously one of the quality of life issues. So I've been studying, you know, megatrends and kind of big changes in the world for a long time and have said urbanization is one of them that we just have assumed is going to keep growing and growing. And in 2015, the World Migration Report said that 3 million people were moving into cities every week. Is that still true with COVID? You know, there was this mass exodus from cities. I saw it in my suburban area. Are you seeing those numbers steady more, less than, than five, six years ago? Where do you think it is today? Well, the well-established long-term trend is for more and more people, both globally and in the U.S., to be moving to cities. We've done a series of reports called Young and Restless, which really focus on where young adults are moving in the United States. And it's definitely the case that Young adults, particularly well-educated young adults, have been moving to cities and within cities to uh, what we call close-in urban neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are usually within three or four miles of the center of the central business district. And while I think there was kind of a pause in that with the coronavirus, it's become increasingly clear that there's still a very strong interest in, in that, particularly that age group, in living in cities. And in fact, um, we talk about what we call a shortage of cities that it's been the migration of people to cities and the growing demand for dense, walkable urban neighborhoods that is behind the big increase in prices in housing in cities, which, as we know, manifests itself in a lot of ways in terms of the affordability problems and then uh, the impacts that it has on the neighborhoods in those cities. Right. So it's interesting you're saying it's the it's driven by the younger folks. They tend to be, at least versus kind of our generation, they don't necessarily want to drive as much or own cars as much or have licenses. I saw that with my teens. They waited a surprising amount of time to get a license. What 
are they coming in and actually increasing congestion or is it, is it not affecting it as much? What does it mean for those trends? Well, first of all, I think you're right. There's a huge demand for people to be able to live in neighborhoods where they are not car dependent. We've done some analysis, for example, of the connection between walkability and home values. And it turns out that people pay a premium to live in more walkable neighborhoods. We use something called WalkScore, which you may have seen on real estate websites, which is a tool that essentially ranks the walkability of every house in the United States on a scale of one to 100. And those more walkable neighborhoods not only command higher prices, but the premium, the relative premium that they command over other neighborhoods uh, has been increasing. So I think it's, you know, people are looking for the kind of place where they don't have to rely so much on automobile transportation. So do you think that the rise of remote working has affected? Because even if there's many people moving into the city, the people that were commuting in from the suburbs, if they're not coming in as much, I think commercial real estate seeing a real, real big hit from this. Is that affecting the, the kind of volume? So I think you need to very broadly think about two different forces here, consumption and production. And typically we think about production where people work, you know, and the jobs that they have. And that's, that's clearly an important factor here. But consumption is another part of it. It's how, where we live, how we live, the things and the places and the experiences that we consume. And while COVID has, you know, and work from home has, has affected that first part, the production piece, it's actually not affected or, if anything, accelerated the city advantages of consumption. And we, and we see it in, you know, neighborhoods across the country where, you know, restaurants are essentially spilling out onto sidewalks now. And we're rethinking the way that we use public space. And while, you know, office environments and downtowns have been hard hit by COVID and work from home, urban neighborhoods have generally done really well. The people who are, you know, not commuting into the office are spending more time in their neighborhoods and demanding more local services. But there has been an effect in downtowns. Hmm. I want to come back to the restaurant thing because it's fascinating to think about what's going to happen now, whether we're going to go back. So. We do want to talk some more about congestion. This seems like a silly question, but what, what is congestion? I mean, we can all say as you know, consumers, I'm driving and I feel like I'm stuck, but how do you as an expert measure it? What's the metrics for congestion? Um, you know, we all have our own personal perspective on it. You know, we're always annoyed when there are all these other people who are trying to travel at the same time we are. And they, they have a saying in Europe, there isn't congestion, you are congestion. You know, we all contribute to it. And I think the, the really the more interesting question than how you define it is why we have congestion. Why do we have congestion? And I think it's because of the way that we price. I'm an economist. It's the way we price or actually we don't price the road system. And the example I like to use is you're probably familiar with Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And you know that yep. once every year, Ben and Jerry have what they call free ice cream day or free cone day. And you can get a free ice cream cone just by going into the store. Well, There's a hitch, which is when it's free, people line up around the block in front of Ben and Jerry's ice cream stores. And yeah, that ice cream cone is free, provided you're willing to wait 15 or 20 minutes. And the reason that Ben and Jerry's has a line around the block on free ice cream cone day is the reason we have traffic congestion. We don't reflect back to consumers the cost of the decisions that they're making. And we end up rationing something that everybody wants based on their patience, their willingness to wait in line for it. And moreover, 
we have these perverse signals that people are getting. They look at, you know, if you run the highway system the way Ben and Jerry's runs their store on free ice cream day and try and run it that way every day, you have the mistaken belief that there's this huge demand for your product and you're always going broke. You don't have enough money to pay for capacity. But the real reason is because you aren't charging anybody a price for the product. And the evidence from around the world is when we reflect back to consumers the actual cost of providing it, providing roadway capacity at the peak hour, which is typically when we have congestion, early morning and and late afternoon rush hours, people quickly change their behavior and we suddenly have enough capacity. That's interesting. I mean, well, this gets at really the core problem. I I have an economics degree. I'm not a full-time economist, but the same problem we have across issues like climate change, right? Where there's exactly. the externalities, the things that we're not pricing is really the, the challenge, right? We've, exactly. We've priced putting, you know, carbon into the atmosphere at zero. So if you, something costs zero, you're going to do as much of it as you feel like. Yeah. And this, this applies across water, waste. I mean, all of our issues. So, yeah, exactly. You know, I get into debates with people about, you know, free markets, but markets aren't free unless you actually price the things in them. So this is, we're going to talk about this, about, you know, congestion pricing. Yeah. What's, but what's, Let's step back for a second. What is the kind of state of congestion in cities around the world? How are things in most large cities? Or just take the 50 in the U.S. that you focus on. So a guy named Tony Downs, who's an economist for Brookings Institution, just passed away. And he wrote a book decades ago about traffic congestion. And, and he basically observed that as long as we don't price roadways, that in urban environments, in dense urban environments, these places where people want to live, the roads are going to fill up to capacity. And that's, that's essentially what happens. As long as we have un- unpriced roads, they get congested. The interesting thing is that phenomenon also works in reverse. When we reduce traffic capacity on roadways, people adapt. They adapt very quickly and change their patterns. And I think we have this tendency to think of traffic and travel as this, this fixed, irreducible quantity. It's like water. It's like tides. And if somehow you don't accommodate, it's going to spill over elsewhere. And it's really more like a gas. It's, it's very compressible. It can go in different places. And our urban environments can work very differently. So rather than thinking about congestion as a problem, we should be thinking about it as a, a really symptom of the, you know, kind of dysfunctional way we've thought about how urban spaces operate. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned the way we think about this. I, I mean, as you're talking, I'm curious about the fact that it seems like when we try to build out to the level, like you said, it's a fixed quantity, we build more roads, the congestion actually increases, right? This is, I mean, has this been your experience? Is this how that we've seen? I mean, I've seen it locally. I yeah. live in Southern Connecticut. We are supposedly the most congested part of I-95 from its entire run of Florida to Maine. And it's almost impossible to get around anymore. But whenever we expand at another lane, it doesn't help. Why is that? Exactly, because there's a huge amount of latent demand that if... The, the reason a lot of people don't take trips at the rush hour is because it's so crowded. So if you add more capacity at the rush hour, people take more trips. And then it has a second order effect that we don't really pay much attention to, which is as we build out our roadway system, that prompts people and businesses to choose to live and work in different places. It changes the scale of economic activity. And I'll give you an example. In the 1930s, fewer than half of American households owned automobiles. And most American households lived within a few blocks or a quarter of a mile of a grocery store. We had probably four or five times as many grocery stores in the United States as we did 
1930 as we did today, when the population was less than half of what it is now. And what happened was, because we had an automobile-oriented system, we invented this thing called the supermarket, which really didn't exist prior to the 1930s. It was all mom-and-pop grocery stores in your neighborhood. And because people could drive, that supermarket and that highly subsidized model of retailing essentially wiped out the mom-and-pop grocery stores. And then we codified that with zoning laws that essentially make it illegal to build grocery stores in residential neighborhoods. So the first order effect is when you build more road capacity, people tend to drive more. The second order effect is that that car-dominated transportation system literally transforms the landscape in a way that is sort of parasitic. It it squelches non-automobile alternatives. When you look at the, the living condition of people who don't own automobiles in the United States, they are demonstrably worse off today than they were 50 or 60 or 70 years ago because the landscape has been transformed into this very auto-centric environment. They're literally second-class citizens now. Yeah. And it contributes to inequality, right? I think. Absolutely. I think I saw the statistic that in LA, those with a car, I think are 30 times more likely to find a job or it's 30 times easier. There was something like that, where if you didn't have a car in LA, you can't apply for most jobs, right? Right. It's an accessibility issue that as, as economic activity has decentralized, the car has gone, has become for a lot of people a, a necessity or a huge advantage. Yeah. And meanwhile, the places where you can live or work without a car, people have bid up the price of them. I mean, that's why we talk about this shortage of cities. So if you think about Manhattan and Brooklyn, or you think about downtown Seattle, you think about San Francisco, people want to live in those places because they have huge access to a lot of amenities and jobs, but we haven't built enough housing there to accommodate them. So uh, the price of housing essentially precludes a lot of people with lower incomes from tapping into the opportunity there and being able to live without an automobile. Yeah. And there's the nimbyism, right? I've seen in my community, if you try to meet state mandates for affordable housing, people start to complain about congestion. They're worried that if you put a you know slightly bigger apartment building kind of in the middle of things, but those people will be able to walk, right? So yeah. it's not necessarily adding, adding that much. If you put it near the trains, you know, it's not necessarily adding that much in the way of cars, but people are always worried that they're going to get backed up. Yeah. You know, we've talked about some of the problems, obviously, and we've all experienced this in our cars. Let's talk about some of the, the places that are doing well. Are there, are there cities that you think are handling this better than others? Who's been a success? We've seen <clears throat> a number of cities around the world, particularly outside the United States, that I think have done really interesting and innovative things. London, with their congestion charge, which they've had in place for almost 20 years now. Singapore, which has a system of road pricing. Milan in Italy has a congestion charge as well. So anytime that you put a price on bringing cars, particularly into dense urban environments, we know that creates some really positive incentives and positive effects. The other thing I'd point to is what's happened in Paris over the last you know, five or 10 years, where the city has consciously gone about rededicating more and more public space to non-automobile forms of transportation, in particular, to encouraging more bike riding, as well as facilitating transit and de-emphasizing the amount of space that's given to automobiles. And, you know, that isn't literally pricing per se, but essentially what we, we've done in the U.S. and in most cities in the world have done is given over a large chunk of the urban environment to essentially free use by automobiles, either for traveling on the road or for 
essentially free and unlimited storage of your car in the public right-of-way. That allocation and those implicit subsidies have really fostered and encouraged a much more automobile use and auto-dependent development. So it sounds like there's a kind of a few categories of solutions. And, you know, some of them are kind of more obvious in that they incentivize like pricing it, like you said, charging people for congestion. So let's dig into that one a little bit. I've been in Singapore a few times and it is remarkable, actually, how well their system works. And you see these giant signs over the road if you're a little bit out of the city center and you watch the price change. Right. And there's a little symbol for a truck, a car, you know, a number of axles. And it changes as the afternoon moves on. Doesn't seem like it bothers people that much. And they realize, okay, maybe I don't need to drive in right now. So it it does seem to work. But I know there's some technology behind this. And there's a, a phrase, I don't know, well, the area licensing scheme. What does that mean? And how are they managing that? Sure. In sort of the first generation road pricing schemes, they've done something that is generally called cordon pricing, where essentially they'll draw a line around a neighborhood like the central city or central district in London. And then when you cross that line, you're liable to pay a fee or you need to have a special license plate. So that's the that's the area licensing idea. But technology has advanced considerably since then. And now we all have cell phones and our cars, new cars in particular, are fully instrumented with GPS and data. And so it's now possible to charge on an entirely different basis, which is to charge on a per trip basis based on when you travel, how far you travel, how fast you go, and what time of day you travel. And that's exactly the model that we're all familiar with if we've ever used Uber and Lyft, because they vary their pricing for trips based on all those factors. So it sounds like Singapore does a lot of civic planning. Are there other other lessons we can learn from them? They seem to have a pretty good control over the situation. Well, Singapore is a really interesting example. I mean, it's got some some unique characteristics that would be hard to duplicate elsewhere. You know, the other thing that I think they do is a really good job uh, with with housing and social housing in particular. You know, the, the the government is very involved in making sure that there's a lot of housing available, and that's something that. We do a very mixed job in the United States. You know, we're very tilted heavily to single family owner occupied homes. We subsidize those heavily through the tax code, chiefly for higher income households. And we don't do a very good job with multifamily housing and with rental housing, which in part is the, one of the reasons we, ha- we have the problem we do. And then yeah. also, you know, Singapore is quite dense. They make it possible to build more housing. And as you noted, we have this NIMBY characteristic in a lot of U.S. cities where it's very difficult, particularly in high demand locations, to build more housing to accommodate all the people who would like to live in in urban environments. Yeah, we have that problem, I guess, in the U.S. It's part of the American dream or the story, right, that we're supposed to have an acre. Everyone's supposed to have a house. We've built the mortgage system to support it. And you're right, it is. It is. I think the mortgage deduction is actually the biggest tax support or tax break in, in the country. It's just it's driven us to. And when you mentioned before, like if we add roads and we increased capacity, what I've read is that then people feel like, okay, I can get there quicker. I can move further out from the city in my dream home. And so that just adds more, more congestion. Yeah. I think there's a lot of mythology to that, actually, because if you think about it, I mean, you know, think about what sort of the middle American dream is. It's that you work 48 or 50 weeks a year and you get two, two weeks or so, or four weeks of vacation, you save up all year and you go to like Disney World or Disneyland. And Disney World and Disneyland are these sort of archetypal representations of 19th century America. They're places that literally have no cars in them, where people get around entirely by transit and walking, and where they're in 
you know, dense, crowded environments and staying in multifamily buildings with other people. So I, I think in a way we've, uh, you know, we've created this, this mythology around the single family home. And what we're seeing, particularly with young people, is, you know, there's a really strong demand to live in urban environments. And the limiting factor on the number of people to, who can live in those in, environments is the fact that uh, we aren't building enough housing in those places that, that have those, those dense characteristics. And in many cases, the way we do zoning in the United States has made it literally illegal to build the kind of dense, walkable neighborhood that a lot of people would like to live in. So, you know, if you think about in Portland, the city I live in, we have, we have a neighborhood in Northwest Portland, right next to downtown that has, has apartments and it has tall buildings and it has, you know, apartment courts and it has some single family homes all interspersed with houses and offices. It's the most desirable, expensive place to live in the entire state of Oregon. And it's literally against the zoning code to kind of replicate that anywhere else because we don't allow that, that level of, that level of density in very many places or that mix of uses. Yeah. I think what the younger generations, the millennials who aren't as young anymore, they're not the youth anymore. They have kids, they're moving into suburbs, you know, and now the Gen Z's who are starting to enter the workforces. I mean, they're just demanding different things in their lives, right? We see it in what they expect about companies they work for and buy from, what they expect on climate action what they want in the places they live. It's just, it seems to be changing things. And I see this, you know, living in a suburb where the boomers who are, you know, moving out of their homes, they raise their kids. They're having trouble, I think, selling them to the young people who don't necessarily want that same lifestyle. There might not be that kind of next generation coming in and who want more of a city or a more dense approach. It's fascinating to see. We'll see as, as, as they get older, if they keep to that. Yeah, there is kind of a life cycle where people consume more space as they get older and have kids. But as you know, we've looked at 25 to 34 year olds 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and now, and in that age group, people in that age group are more likely to choose to live in close in urban neighborhoods now than at any time in that 40 year period. So let's talk about some of the things that maybe don't require money, but are, are kind of counterintuitive. So Paris in 2019 had a unique fix for their congested beltways. They removed lanes. I know they're not the only one, and it seems probably counterintuitive to a U.S. citizen. How does re, you know reducing lanes and speeds actually lead to higher throughput? Yeah, there's actually a technical name for this. It's called traffic evaporation, and we've seen it. You don't have to go as far away as Paris. You can go to Seattle when they um, closed the the viaduct that ran along the waterfront in Seattle. They just they had to tear it down. They closed it, and they were predicting Carmageddon that there would be uh, you know traffic jams everywhere. And it turned out that people knew that the capacity wasn't going to be there and they rearranged their trips. And that happens regularly. It happened in Minneapolis when they had their freeway collapse a decade ago. It happened in Los Angeles when they closed a freeway for a section of, uh, uh, for, for a construction project. So we know that when you reduce capacity, people change their behavior. And that's something that you can do either by reducing capacity directly or by pricing it. And that's what we see when we price roadways. If you price a roadway, people will move away from it and find other alternatives. Well, thanks, Joe. That's really interesting. So we've talked about congestion pricing, removing lanes, which leads to some counterintuitive outcomes. What are some of the other things we're doing to reduce congestion? What about all the pickups and drop-offs, the curb things that are happening with all the ride hailing? How's that affecting congestion? 
The pickups and drops offs are are very obvious manifestations of you know e-commerce. But the thing that I think we need to keep in mind, and that's often overlooked, is those pickup and drop offs substitute for shopping trips. And the best evidence is that each mile that's traveled by a delivery truck reduces the number of miles of shopping trips by about 30 miles, private car miles. So if you and I aren't driving our you know, SUV to the store, but are instead getting um, deliveries, that, that one delivery truck is making a whole bunch of deliveries that offsets vehicle miles traveled. Now, you know, there, there, there are some congestion effects there because the deliveries don't happen evenly spaced out through the day. But overall, so far, I think the evidence is e-commerce is reducing the amount of vehicle miles of travel and is probably contributing to a reduction in congestion. Now, there's some really complex, you know, issues here about, you know, what happens to retailing. You know, we're seeing a lot of closures of retail establishments around the country. But again, that's that's a reflection of, you know, less foot traffic and less car traffic to those retail establishments. Well, speaking of curbs and taking away lanes, all those restaurants that are sitting now in parking or, or lanes in major cities, does it seem like those are going to stay? I haven't seen them go away yet. You think that's going to stay as a permanent kind of alfresco way of eating? You know, you always hesitate to say permanent, but I think it's, it's changed people's perception about what's possible to do in the public realm. And we used to think that the only thing you could do there is, is either move cars or park cars. And I think people now realize that we could make very different use of our public space and have discovered that it's very, you know, it's very convivial. You know, it's nice to have activity on the, you know, on the sidewalk or in the streets. And it makes makes for a more lively community. And I think that's that's something that we can build on. Hopefully we move away from, you know, kind of the temporary plywood and plastic shelters that we see built on the streets to something that's a little bit more, you know, interesting and permanent. But again, I think it's a reminder that we could do things very differently if we chose to. Yeah. That's right. Well, I know people listening who maybe not fans of cars. We haven't really talked about public transport. You know, we said if we invest in infrastructure for more roads, we get more congestion. That's not true for public transport, right? If we invest in that, doesn't that reduce congestion? Doesn't it actually do what it's supposed to? Yeah, a public transit to the extent that we create places where it works well that are dense and that are that have high levels of service. Yeah, that gives people a viable alternative to being in cars. And, and, you know, it's intrinsically, it's a, it's a much more efficient way to move large numbers of people. So I think the investments in public transit do help, particularly the ones that are in supportive of this dense urban neighborhood development. The more peripheral locations, I, I think it's less clear, but in cities, it makes a big difference. So are there any, any more new or alternative mobility modeling systems that are getting you excited or hopeful? Is there some traffic buster program out there that, that's coming? Well, I think we need to not think about transportation in isolation. Transportation is necessitated by the way urban areas are built and populated. And one of the ways to reduce the demand for transportation and to reduce congestion is to build our urban areas in ways where people don't have to travel as much and don't have to, when they do, don't have to travel as far and when they have more options. So the most important thing in the long run we can do is build the kind of dense mixed-use neighborhoods where people can walk and bike and take transit for a lot of purposes. And when they do need to travel by car, don't have to travel as far. So I think we need to think about transportation as something more than just 
mobility. We have to think about it in terms of accessibility. What are the things that we have easy access to nearby? Well, like kind of every major problem we're facing, it's all about systems and interconnections is is what you're saying, basically, right? We can't think about anything in just one dimension. There's all these things that that tie to it. And that's part of what we're doing in this um, podcast series. Yeah. So let me um, give you the final lightning round, which is just to put on your crystal ball reading hat and look out your window 20 years from now. We're all looking out our windows. What are we going to see? What do you think is going to happen in cities and congestion? Well, hopefully when you look out your window, you'll see a lot more people on the street, you know, people walking and biking. And, and as we were talking about, you know, eating and dining and recreating and socializing in the public realm. And the, the more we can do that, the more we can create opportunities for people to interact and live in great urban spaces, the fewer problems we'll have getting around and the less money that we'll need to spend and the fewer the carbon emissions are that we'll create. And I think when we look, you know, as I've mentioned, when we look at where the younger generation is moving, there's a huge demand, an unrequited demand for these kind of high density walkable urban spaces that have a lot of amenities, a lot of things close at hand, and that allow you to live as much as possible without having to rely on a private automobile. So I think we'll see more and more of that in the next several decades. Uh, That's a great vision. I hope so. And maybe we'll look out the window and the sky will be clearer. We'll see the outskirts. That was one of the lessons of COVID. When we all stopped going into work, there were measurable improvements in air quality in major cities around the United States. So Again, it's a reminder that if we have a lot more range to do things differently than we imagine. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that's a cause for optimism. Yeah, I've been showing people this picture of LA from early April of 2020, and nobody can identify it because there's mountains behind the, yes. the buildings. You can see it. It was so clear. And that's not the way we want to get there, but it's, you know, it's a it was a nice vision. No, but if we could build places where people could live more, you know, closer to home, live in their neighborhoods, enjoy all the things that they want close at hand, that's certainly a possibility. That's great. It's a great vision. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for joining us. My pleasure. I want to thank Joe Courtright for joining us today on City Talks and giving us a vision for the future of mobility that involves a lot less sitting in traffic. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Andrew Winston, and thanks again for listening to City Talks by Ford. 